You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. Hey all, it's your worship leader Matt here. Um, Due to a technical mishap, we've got some background music playing in the background for the first uh, large portion of the sermon today. Um, But we decided to post it anyways because we think that you could still get a lot out of it. It's a great sermon uh, on a text that we don't read very much. So um, we decided to post it anyway. Sorry about the uh, inconvenience. Hopefully you're still able to be blessed here uh, by listening to it today. Thanks, Saul. We are in uh, the story of Genesis. I'm going to do my best to wrap up next week. We're in chapter 38, and there's 50 chapters. We're probably going to have to skip some stuff, uh, but it's the story of Joseph next week. But before we get to the story, I know it's a good one too, but we'll be here all, all year if I... If you have any questions or comments, feel free to send it. Any, that number will be on the bottom of every slide. I always start with the bad news that I think addresses today's good news because we're talking about good news. We're talking about the good news of Jesus. But I think sometimes we got to talk about the bad news so we can prepare ourselves for what Jesus is going to speak to us, that good news. And I think it's this. Every society has its own way of looking down on certain sins and sinners. Looking down their nose at people that they deem unacceptable, right? Or have unacceptable behavior. I think we know that's true. I think uh, we've all experienced that. We've probably been on both ends of that, if we could be honest with ourselves. There's times when people have looked down on us for things that we thought weren't terribly bad, but for some reason was. There's times when we probably looked down on people for things that we deemed very bad, but maybe in the scheme of things, not so much. There's a way in which polite society picks and chooses what kinds of sins are bad and which kinds of sins are just picadillos, right? Just little, tiny, just a white lie, right? There's a way in which polite society does that and usually has to do with who has resources, who has power in a society. One of my favorite trends over this last year, uh, as far as memes go, it's called classy and trashy. What's classy if you're rich, but trashy if you're poor? I love this. I, I, we're, just, we're just opening our mind. You may hate this, and this isn't the Bible, and you can hate this. There's a couple examples that come to mind. One of them is living in a mobile home, right? Like I grew up in my grandparents' 60-foot double wide, and people were like, trailer trash. But then people of means go out and buy big old trailers, right? And they're like, look at our mobile home. And I'm like, how come that's classy and mine was trashy? Mine was way bigger. Mine was way, 60-foot, double, way bigger. Speaking two languages, right? If you have, if you're people of means, then speaking two languages is a is a positive. But if you're people in the margins, speaking two languages usually symbolizes something about you that maybe you're not quite as American as the rest of us or something. I like this one: getting money from the government. Right? If you're poor and you're taking money from the government, you're leeching, and if you're rich, you're taking money from the government. That's just smart, right? Not paying taxes, right? If you're poor, you're like, just taking advantage. If you're wealthy, you're like, that's just good business sense, trying to get out of all that stuff. Like there's just a way in which our society can give these double standards and I think it happens all the time. 
I know it's true in my life. I do this, I'm usually sometimes at the top, but I've been at the bottom, it's not great. But that's, I think, what today's story tries to tease out as we dive into it. Intro and summary, I'm gonna to try to do this quickly. We got a lot of story to cover. In the beginning, God created everything and it was good. And he created humans and we were these divine royal co-rulers over creation with God, but we plunged it into sin and selfishness, death and disease through our own rebellion because we wanted to be God-like instead of living in the image of God in which God created us. God had multiple rescue attempts, but ultimately landed on these nobodies from nowheres who were almost 100 years old without kids, and God's plan was to take them and give them lots of kids and make them a great nation. And they end up having kids through many trials and tribulations, through all their lack of faith and doubt. Uh, God blesses them and continues on with this plan with Abraham and Sarah. And so you get Abraham and Sarah, and then they have Isaac, and he marries Rebecca. And then they have some twins, uh, Jacob and Esau. Jacob becomes the child of promise, and he has a couple wives, Rachel and Leah. And then he also has children by their maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah. And Jacob has 12 sons. Just a couple notes of background. That, Jacob's name changes to Israel. Israel, Jacob, has 12 sons. These become the 12 tribes of Israel, and those are his 12 sons in order. His favorite wife was Rachel, and she bore him these two sons, and so you can imagine that these sons are his favorite. But those are the 12 tribes of Israel. They ended up having their own families, and it created a nation, the nation we know as Israel, Jacob. Some of the backstory you need to know is that Reuben is the first child, so he should be the child of blessing, but he isn't because he ends up sleeping with one of his stepmoms. I don't know what it is when you have a lot of parents. Is it like a co-mom? It's, it's not his bio mom, but he slept with one of the moms. In the, and so his dad's like, you defiled my couch. You can, that's what he says. You, you can't. That's in the Bible, y'all. Simon and Levi, we talked about last week, how they used their religious fervor for selfishly violent means. They, and so Jacob really curses them. He says, I hope their, their, their uh, reputation is not tied to my own. I will never take advice from them again. They are too violent. And so that would leave Judah as the next in line. And the story we get today is, is one chapter. We really don't hear from Judah all that much more. But it's a story about why he's not going to be the favorite. He doesn't, he doesn't hold himself well as, as well. It, it's really going to be Joseph as the child of promise. Um, but we're going to hear about Judah's story today. And then the other thing you need to know about this is this thing called Levite marriage. And it was essentially this. Levite mar marriage. If a man dies before having children with his wife, his brother, or next male kin, could be a cousin, must step in and marry the dead man's wife, have children, raise the children as the children of the dead man so they get his name so that his name won't be blotted out in Israel forever, and also so those children can inherit that first man's property. Not a great system. I do not recommend it. You know, sometimes these people I hear being like, we need to get back to a biblical worldview, and I'm like, I don't, I'm not doing this. So, 
You, if you all want to go start some cult and do that, go ahead. But um, and Jesus doesn't require this of us. But this was a very biblical idea in the time, and this is what is gonna. Uh, it's gonna be a backdrop for what happens in our story today. One man is gonna die without having children. The brother needs to step in. There's three of them. This happens all the time. And again, like last week, it's more Game of Thrones than it is anything else. And so there is some sensitive material. And so if you don't want your children to hear that, again, this is your final call before we jump into the story. Well, let's jump in the story. Genesis 38. I'm going to try to summarize the first parts of it. It builds up to really one line. And that's where we're heading. There was a man named Judah, Jacob's son. He's one of the, uh, one of the tribes of Israel. And he ends up settling on the outskirts of the territory near Israel's enemies, the Canaanites, and he takes a wife from there. Yeah. Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her. That, that poor wife never gets a name. Her dad's name and her husband's name, but not him. And he slept with her, and she became pregnant. She gave birth to a son. There will be three sons. They are Ur, Onan, and Shelah. I don't know if it's Sheila, but it doesn't sound right to say Sheila, so I'm going to say Shelah. Just, it could be Shela. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Just kidding, Shelah. So that's who we are. We got Judah, married a woman, had three sons. Judah decides that when his oldest son needs a wife, and so he has him marry a woman named Tamar. Ur marries Tamar. She's going to be the, the heroine of the story. But the Lord considered Judah's oldest son, Ur, to be wicked and strikes him dead on the spot. This is a divine capital punishment. He's killed. Yeah. Put him to death. And so Judah, the dad, told his second son, Onan, it's your duty to marry Tamar because Ur did not have any kids with him, her. And so you must go in and have kids with her so that you can continue on Ur's lineage and name. And it says that Onan, knowing that these children would not be considered his, went in and slept with Tamar, but he did not inseminate her. He spilled his seed on the ground, and God considered that to be wicked, and also struck him dead on the spot. Just zap. I don't know if it was a lightning bolt. That feels more like the Greek gods, but Onan's dead too. Just uh, some backstory. A lot of early Christians used that story of Onan to talk about how people shouldn't, I'm going to say, masturbate. It was called Onanism. But really, that's not what's going on behind the story. What's going on behind the story is that Onan is objectifying this poor, grieving widow for his own sexual gratification. And God is not happy about that. So God kills him immediately. So what do you do? It got real quiet when I said masturbation. Thank you. I'm just telling you, it was called Onanism for a long time based on this story. It's a bad reading of the story. Um, and so you say you're Judah and you have three beautiful sons and two of them are now dead. And the common denominator is Tamar. You're starting to think some thoughts. But it's not Tamar's fault. The story's very clear. These men did wicked things and God punished them for it. But Judah decides, you are not going to marry my youngest son, Shelah. 
Why don't you go back to your father's household until my son Shalah grows up? He thought Shalah would die like his brothers had. So Tamar went and lived in her father's household. So he's not, he's not really waiting for Shalah to grow up. He's worried that his son's going to die, and so he's circumventing the cultural expectations and the things that are put on him by, uh, by God. After a long time, Judah's wife dies. She gets no name, but her dad does. I don't know why. It's pretty sad. But Judah is now uh, without wife. After a period of mourning, he and his neighbor decide to go up to where Tamar lives, and they're going to shear some sheep, which sounds sexual, but it is really just sheep shearing at the time. Someone tells Tamar, your father-in-law is coming up here to get his sheep sheared. And she comes up with a plan. Equally as deceptive as Judah. She took off her widow's clothes and she put on the clothes of that of a prostitute, got herself all made up, and she sat at the gate of the city. And Judah came along, and it says that she did that because she realized that although Shalah had already grown up, she hadn't been given to him as a wife. This is what she's operating with. I am owed a husband. Women in this time who were widows without children faced destitute poverty. More than that, there was an obligation that she was a part of this family, and she needed to be taken care of. And there were things that she was supposed to receive as being part of the family, and she was not given them. And so she came up with this plan to entice her father-in-law into a night of unbridled passion. Judah saw her and thought she was a prostitute because she covered her face. He turned to her on the road and he said, let me sleep with you. He didn't know it was his daughter-in-law. There is such a track record of men in Genesis just blinded by lust that they don't recognize who they're with at all. Just like his grandpa in the tent. Wait, this is his dad. Just like his dad in the tent. He wants Rachel, the love of his life. And, and his father-in-law replaces it with his sister. And he's just so blinded by his own lust that he doesn't even realize who he's getting married to in the tent that night. He married to. And so this is the same. He doesn't realize this is his daughter-in-law who... Both of his sons have been married to at this point. He's been to two weddings with this woman. And she says, what are you going to give me for sleeping with you? And he said, I'm going to give you a kid goat for my flock. Did you see the double entendre? Did you see where the story's going? I'm going to give you a kid goat for my flock. It's right on the nose. You see it coming. And she says, I need some kind of deposit. How will I know? You don't have any kid goats with you. You're up here shearing sheep. How do I know you're going to bring this goat? And he says, what kind of deposit do you need? And she says, I want your seal, your cord, your staff. These are items of identification, family signet rings, etc. It would be like in our days, a credit card or an ID and a PG&E bill that proves you live at that address, right? <laughs> like there's three forms. She's getting three forms of ID. You can't fly in this country anymore unless you do that with your real ID. You get it. Here's my credit card. It has my face on it. So you know it's me. He goes, gladly. He does it. He gives these to her. He sleeps with her, and she becomes pregnant by him. Great. Quickly, 
She got up, left. She, she put on her widow's mourning clothes again. Judah goes to send that goat, but he doesn't want to go up by himself, so he sends his neighbor again. His neighbor goes up, and he's going, hey, where's that um, temple prostitute, that holy woman who works in a temple who, who does these types of things for men? If you don't know, in this culture, not in our faith, but in other faiths, there were women who worked in the temple when their service was to work as a prostitute. This was a, an act of worship for men in these pagan religions. And so he doesn't show up and say, where's the prostitute? He says, where's the holy woman who prostitutes in the temple? And they go, we don't, there's no one here that, that does that. Quit trying to church up what happened, brother. Like, <laughs> consecrated worker, this translation says. Remember Judah said, ah, she looks like a prostitute. And now the, work, the neighbor's like, where's that holy woman at? There's no consecrated worker here. So he goes back to Judah and he says, there's no one there. And Judah says, they're going to laugh us out of this town if we keep talking about this situation. I tried to uphold my end of the bargain. Let her keep my credit card. I'm out. I'll cancel it at the bank or whatever. I just couldn't find her. Let's get into the nitty gritty. Just a couple more slides. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar has become a prostitute and is now pregnant because of it. And Judah said, bring her out so that she may be burned. He is so disgraced by her actions because she's still part of his family that he goes to her town and says, let's burn her alive. So he gets up there and he says that. And when they brought her out, she sent this message to him. I imagine it has discretion. She doesn't just go, hey, everybody. She sends a message to Judah alone. She says, hey, I'm, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these things. If you recognize whose these are, we'll know who the father is, and then we can start a family or whatever. But Judah recognized them. It's got his picture right here. And he says, she's more righteous than I am. The whole story builds to that line. She is more righteous than I am because I didn't allow her to marry my son, Shalah. Judah never slept with her again, and she gave birth to twins, Perez and Zerah, which means bursting forth and dawn. You know how we preach, head, heart, hand, something for us to know, something for us to experience, something for us to do. We're going to be quick about it. What does God want us to know with this story? What does God want us to know with this story? I think it's this. I think there's lots of lessons. We tell this story for lots of reasons. We're not going to exhaust all the meaning here, but what's coming to me, feel free to disagree, but with our head, I think God wants us to know is that to whom much is given, much is required. Jesus says exactly that in Luke 12. Much will be demanded from everyone who has been given much, and from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be asked from them. Nothing has been given to Tamar, and she has been indicted for nothing. She is totally off the hook. The story would never condone her actions. No one reading this, no ancient Israel, no ancient Christian, no modern Christian would say, she did the right thing. She practiced deception too. There were some really hard facts about her story. But because she's so marginalized and because she's facing such an awful future without doing these things, she's effectively off the hook. Not only so, she gets nothing, not even a side eye from the text of like, we shouldn't be doing what Tamar's doing. Nothing. In fact, she's almost killed. 
That's what she almost receives. And many women in her position have been killed for less. But she actually receives. She's actually blessed. Not only with one child, but with two. In this culture, children are important. Jesus changes that. But we can take a look at this culture and go, children are important. And this was her reward for her actions. So not only is she off the hook, but she gets, she gets blessed. This is a lesson in the kingdom of God. That much is required from those who have much. My only example is my oldest born and my youngest born, right? I'm making them do chores. And the, uh, my two oldest have to unload the dishwasher and they get so mad that my youngest doesn't have to do the dishwasher. Can you imagine a five-year-old unloading the dishes? I would never find anything ever again. Or be able to open any drawer ever again. They would, the potato masher would just block it forever. I'd have to break my whole cabinet down. But they're like, why doesn't he? You, we get this idea that to whom much has been given, much is required. He is 11 and he is five. There's a big age difference. There's a big skill difference. Uh, he gets things, but he also has responsibilities. Right? We get it. Just inherently, this makes sense. To me. It wouldn't make sense to treat him the same as him. If you know, that there's a difference between equality and there's a difference with equity. Equity and equality are different. Equality would be treating them the same. Equity would be allowing for the differences, but still regarding them as equally valuable. He should have more responsibility, right? He's got more. Taller. He gets all kinds of cool gadgets and gizmos. He gets to stay up later. Right? I don't yell at him as much. We get it. We inherently get it. Judah in this story has it all. Position, possessions, people, power, popularity. Because in this story, he has it all. The story expects him to care in more responsible ways for the people around He is expected to risk more because he has more. For the sake of the community, especially those who have less, for those who have less. This is one of the great takeaways of this story, is that they both act in ways that I would never encourage any of you to act. But he's on the hook because he's been given more. The sin of Judah is that though he has been given much, he chose selfishness over sharing. He, in fear, turned inward to protect his family and his child. And the community said, who wrote this story? That's an unacceptable. What does God want us to feel in all of this? What does God want us to experience inside? This story points to a thing called upside-down righteousness. Upside-down righteousness. Which is what we talked about in the beginning. Our culture has an idea of what things are bad and what things are good. You know what I mean? Polite society knows what the sins and the sinners are, but they want to let themselves off the hook oftentimes, and they have the power and position to do so. And this story points to how God has an upside-down view of righteousness. The story desperately wants to show us a new definition of righteousness. What is righteousness? Just, just to clarify. Righteousness is, is how to live rightly with God. It is an understanding of how we 
are supposed to live right with God and by God. People who are righteous are people who live rightly according to God's ways and will. And in this story, Judah is pragmatic and he's prudent. It seems like he's making a very reasonable decision to protect his last son. Two kids died. I don't want to chance it. Maybe it wasn't Tamar. Maybe she's poisoning him. I don't know. You know, he doesn't know. The story tells us it's God. But it seems like he's making a very pragmatic, prudent, practical decision. Very reasonable. And Tamar, on the other hand, she's dealing in deception, illicit sex, trying to solely the name of a good and prominent family in the community. Even in our culture, we look down our nose at Tamar's, right? And yet this story wants to flip it. And there's a part of us, maybe not quite to the degree that you, there's a part of us, she should pay. He says she should be burned, killed, light her up. This is the first time this has been suggested in scripture, by the way. Moses hasn't come. There's no laws about what to do with people who commit adultery, especially people who commit adultery by selling the good name and prostitution and all these kind of things. Judah's the first one that's like, let's burn her. And then she is more righteous than I am. There's a flipping of righteousness. There's a flipping of the understanding of, of right and wrong here, of blame, of rules, of what's expected, the cultural understandings. Everything is flipped. Everything's flipped. The only story I could come up to try to illustrate this, again, totally disagree with me. I, you're, this is not in the scripture. Does anybody know who Stella Liebeck is? You, you probably do. This is the woman who was burned by McDonald's coffee in 1992 and then sued McDonald's. And literally everybody for 20, 30 years, next year's 30 years, was like frivolous lawsuit. This lady's driving down the street. She's got coffee in her lap. What, she spilled a little bit of coffee on herself and she's like, I'm suing. And everyone's like, oh, Americans love lawsuits. We just sue everybody for every reason. We don't even care. This woman's just trying to become a millionaire off some scalding coffee. And then you read the real story. Have you ever read the real story of this poor woman? She's, let me tell you. <laughs> I don't think I will. Moving on. No, no. <laughs> Remember it was on every news channel for a million years. It was just like this woman's trying to take advantage of the system. And these courts are overrun with frivolous lawsuits. What really happened was she's parked in the passenger seat and she admits that it was her mistake, but she was trying to take the lid off to add some cream and sugar because you've got to sweeten that up a little bit. And as she's taking the lid off, it spills. And she admits that that's 100% her fault. 6% of her body was covered in third degree burns. 20% of her body was covered in second degree burns. She ended up in the hospital for about two weeks. Her surgeon that was doing skin grafts said it was one of the worst cases he'd ever seen. She did not want to go to court. She called McDonald's and said, my bills are $20,000 in 1992. So that's like, I don't know, a billion dollars. I'm just kidding. Maybe. <laughs> if you invested it in Apple stock. Um, she says, my bills are 20 grand. Would you mind helping me with those? They made her wait six months and they said, here's 800 bucks. She's like, no, and I don't want to go to court. Can we go to mediation? And McDonald's said, sure, let's go to mediation. And that drug out for more months. 
by now she has no money. Um, and the mediator said, you should give her 300 grand at least. And they were like, not doing that. And so she's like, well, let's go to court. And in court, what came up was that McDonald's had been purposefully overheating the coffee so that it lasts longer. So it was like 195 degrees instead of like 185. It's close to boiling. And they did this on purpose. There were 700 burn complaints over the last decade. And the jury was so compelled by her story and this idea that McDonald's knew that their coffee was scalding people that they decided, let's punish McDonald's. And we're just gonna take two days of coffee profits and give them to this poor 72-year-old woman who had 6% of her body covered in third degree points. And two days of profits is $2.6 million. And so she was awarded $2.6 million. And then the lawyers went, look how frivolous all these lawsuits are. This is out of, out of control. Americans just love to sue people. And they got a judge to reduce what the amount that she was given and she settled for 600 grand which is not, a, I mean, it's a lot of money, but it's not $2.6 million. But, but the story is not that this woman was just looking to sue somebody. And there's multiple attempts of her trying to avoid court. The McDonald's, uh, their PR department went into effect and just spun this whole story as this woman was just, this demon woman is trying to take advantage of this poor little global corporation. <laughs> and we all believed it, right? We all believed it. I don't know if we all did. I did. I was like, Maybe I could spill some coffee on myself. <laughs> then I learned her story and I was like, I would never, never. Just to illustrate the point, but there's a way in which sometimes our culture can tell us who the sinners are, who needs to be rejected, who needs to be blamed, who, who the rules need to be applied to. And with enough media spin, we'll go, okay, yeah, that sounds good. Because it's not me, right? Like, I don't want to, as long as somebody else. There's an idea in this story about how righteousness is flipped. And when you know the full story, uh, God's doing something else besides uh, what's culturally pragmatic and, and who the responsible people are and who should be let off the hook. Jesus teaches us about this upside down righteousness. He says to you, unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the legal experts and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus isn't saying, you should be better at following the rules than these people. He's saying God is doing a new righteousness that rejects list religion, rejects trying to figure out who is at fault and to blame. It's a kingdom that is about receiving the grace of God and embracing freely those around us who need the grace of God. Jesus gives a couple stories. Lots of rich people were given money at the temple, but Jesus said it was the poor widow who gave her two pennies. That's that. That's the person you want to emulate. It'd be easy to go, look at all the money they gave. And Jesus goes, that's, that's not even close to the most important thing that's going on here. It's the widow who put everything in. From her hopeless poverty, she gave what she had. Jesus says, all the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. Pharisees and the legal experts were grumbling, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Who does Jesus hang out with? It's not the people that we assume. Certainly before I knew Jesus, I assumed Jesus was hanging out with other people. That's my joke. I always say it is that I, I, I didn't think Jesus was on my street. I thought he was in Kelly Ridge or Sacramento or something, right? Like I just assumed he abandoned us. And then you read the story and you're like, oh, he was hanging out on my street the whole time, right there. It's an upside down righteousness. 
Jesus even yells at the Pharisees and the tax collectors. He goes, you're just mad because the whores and the tax collectors are entering the kingdom of God before you are. Because they're hearing and they're trying. Jesus wants us to experience this upside down righteousness. To reject the way of polite society. The way that it looks down their nose at certain sins and sinners. To think, to think differently than the, than the world does about rules and blame and to gracious, graciously embrace those do not have much. Our society often expects people to believe and behave before they belong, but Jesus flips that and allows people to belong before they believe or behave, which is good news for me. This is the upside down righteousness and it's radical and it's dangerous and it will, it will not only include all the people we think should be kicked out, but they often become the leaders of the next generation and iteration of church. What does God want us to do? Final point, if you have any questions, send them in. This is what God wants us to do. Act in the assurance that God will redeem us. Move confidently in the world that God has got you. And you're not gonna do it perfectly and you're probably gonna mess up, but God can take that and redeem it. And it is good news, I promise you. Tamar and Judah's story doesn't end there. It doesn't end with, and he doesn't sleep with her anymore and she's got a couple twins, right? By the way, twins, good night. God bless you. Bring them over, I'll babysit. Out of this incredibly icky story with double deception and buying sex and burning sinners, we get Zarah and Perez, which means the dawn is bursting forth. It's probably a little more gruesome than that because Perez is bursting forth during birth, right? If you read the story, he's trying to get out as fast as he can. There's a beauty in that the dawn is bursting forth out of this ugly story where we don't really know what to do with the morality of it. We don't know why it's kind of jammed in the middle of Genesis. The dawn bursts forth. God's salvation plan is birthed out of this difficult, tragic, horrible story. I'm not reading all this because it's the list of begats. Jesus was 30 years old. Son of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mathat, son of Levi. I'm not going to read that. But what all the Christians want us to see about the story of Tamar is that it affects Jesus. There's Perez. That's Tamar's son, the one who is bursting forth. Perez becomes the grandfather. And when I say grandfather, I mean great-grandfather times eight. Someone show me where David is. First one to find it wins. Left? Oh, right here. Perez becomes the eight times great-grandfather of David. It becomes the 51 times great-grandfather of Jesus. And Matthew makes it more explicit. Again, you can't see it. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Matthew wants you to see that out of this story, God burst forth like the dawn, a plan for salvation that Jesus comes from. Pity David comes from. Because of Tamar's actions, she is the great nine times grandmother of King David and the great 51 times grandmother of Jesus. God uses the very worst parts of our own story for God's own glory. 
This just isn't something that God can do. This is a promise that God gives us, and I can have 25 verses to prove it. But I'm going to use 1 Peter and then wrap up. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, the one who called you into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, empower, strengthen, and establish Any questions? I saw some text. Moral of the story is we should drink iced coffee. Oh, I was like, I don't get it. I got iced coffee. Is that what this is? No, it's the woman who got burned. The McDonald's one. Iced coffee is Someone said, can you clarify when you say our culture, what, what is this culture? Church culture, U.S. culture, U.S. church culture. You mentioned our culture during the McDonald's story. Great question. Sometimes I'm largely thinking about American culture. But one of the things I learned, I studied sociology. That's my first degree. Every society um, comes up with a list of things that are looked down upon. There's a guy named Emil Durkheim who says, even among a community of perfect saints, they would find something to be mad about, usually as a way to reinforce their own self-righteousness. So like, um, I just imagine like in a community of saints, someone who bites their nails really loudly, not a sin. But that community would be like, people who bite their nails loudly got to go. You know what I mean? Like, just to read. There's a way in which all societies do this. Churches do this too. Every 10 years or so, the church will come up with the worst sin. And everybody who practices or participates in that sin, they can't be a part of what Jesus is doing, right? And so I could list them, but it would just be more scandalous when I'm trying to wrap up. So every society, I would say, but U.S. culture, the one we live in, does this because it's so intermingled with Christianity. There's a way in which American dream can get tied up with the kingdom of God, and if you're not doing the right steps, then somehow you're not quite a holy person. So I hope that helps. Conclusion, wrapping up. With our head, God wants us to know that to whom much is given, much will be expected. And I'm going to let you and the Holy Spirit figure it out if you're on the end of, I don't have much or I got a lot, but I assume that Jesus has always given all of us enough so that we can be responsible to somebody. With our heart, we need to move beyond the rules and the blame and the rejecting because Jesus invites us to live this upside-down righteousness of embracing the gracious gift of just it all. And with our hands, uh, we are invited to act in the assurance that God will redeem us, trusting God will make good out of our very worst. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for the story. It is wild and it is scandalous, and yet you still preach to us, teach us, show us. Would you convict us of the ways that we look down or want to ostracize ways that we compare ourselves to others to make ourselves feel more holy. 
Would you help us to embrace that upside-down righteousness? People who receive the gift that you have given us of life, salvation, and be people who share it freely. And would all that start right here? I know you've been working on a lot of us for a long time, but would you help that to continue or to start as we come to your cup and your bread as we come to your table? May it be spiritual nourishment for us as we continue to follow you. And we will give you praise and thanks. Table Church, will you pray with me the Lord's Prayer, saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.